Ladies and gentlemen, I'm Eileen O'Connor. I'm chairman of the Administrative Law and Regulations Practice Group. I welcome you to the panel that we've put together for this year's convention. For those of you who are members of the Federalist Society, but perhaps not yet uh, working with a practice group, I invite you to go to the Federalist Society website. There are 16 practice groups. I bet there is at least one that is going to uh, satisfy your need for additional professional engagement with like-minded people. One of the things, you, you get to do a lot of things, you put together teleforums, uh, we get together on the phone for half an hour a month and that's it, that's all it takes to exchange ideas, plan activities, including planning this incredible panel. Administrative law, you know, some people think maybe that's an oxymoron, but that, that aside, we will talk about that. For as many contributions to modern American jurisprudence, no area of law bears Justice Scalia's imprint more than administrative law. Indeed, he dedicated his entire career to it, from teaching at the University of Virginia in Chicago, to serving in the Ford administration, to regulatory policy and legal writings. We have gathered together for you today a panel of experts to discuss Justice Scalia's evolving views on administrative law. And my charge today is merely to introduce to you our topic, which I've just done, and our moderator who will introduce the panelists. Born in Cleveland to a 27-year-old Jones Day lawyer and his lovely blue-eyed wife of three years, our moderator was the second child, the first son of what would later become a much larger and well-known family. At the age of four, he moved with his family from Cleveland to Charlottesville, Virginia, where his father had been appointed a professor of law. When he was eight, the family moved again, this time to the Washington, D.C. area, where his father had been appointed general counsel of telecom policy in the Nixon-Ford administration. Other government positions in the D.C. area followed, but when our moderator was 14, he moved with his family again, this time to Chicago, where his father had become a law professor. When he was in college, his father was confirmed to the United States Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia, and four years later, when he was in law school, our moderator the son, became the son of an associate justice of the United States Supreme Court, the justice for whom a law school has already been named and to whom this entire conference is dedicated. But that is not why Gene Scalia is the moderator of our panel today. The Administrative Law and Regulations Practice Group is so honored to have Gene Scalia moderate this panel today because of his own remarkable professional accomplishments. They are more numerous than we should take time for now and are known to you anyway. I'll just read to you the first paragraph of a recent Wall Street Journal article. A federal judge's decision to revoke MetLife Inc.'s too-big-to-fail designation is the latest in a string of wins for the insurer's lawyer, Eugene Scalia, who has emerged as the go-to advocate in recent years for companies looking to challenge government regulation. Who more perfect to moderate this panel? Thank you so much. Please welcome Gene Scalia. Eileen, thanks so much for that introduction. It was very sweet, and uh, we, we, we just moved constantly. Uh, every, every four years until finally my dad was able to hold a job for a pretty decent period of time, actually. Um, uh, as was said, there's no area of the law that my father cared uh, more about 
then administrative law and probably no area where he had more influence. He was a professor of administrative law before becoming a judge. He served as assistant attorney general for the Office of Legal Counsel, uh, which is a job rich, rich with questions of administrative law. For several years, he edited and wrote lively pieces in the journal Regulation. As a Court of Appeals judge in the DC Circuit, he relished uh, the uh, docket of that court, a docket that some have found to be tedious. And he was proud and fond of his services, chair of the Administrative Conference of the United States, or ACUS, and also as chair of the ABA Ad Law section. It was in part through his involvement with the ABA Ad Law section that he met uh, two uh, close, uh, lifelong friends, Justices Breyer and Ginsburg. Uh, in uh, cleaning out my father's chambers this year, I came across two dusty binders of his uh, articles and speeches from the 70s and 80s. Uh, I brought one. Um, all faded and pale. Um, uh, from the 70s and 80s, that he, uh, he had obviously pulled together to prepare for his confirmation hearings to the Supreme Court. The volumes are carefully organized. They have little tabs, handwritten tabs, handwritten sub-tabs by topic. Um, anybody who's been through the confirmation process, I think, can imagine the combination of pride and maybe uh, second thoughts with which uh, he uh, might have pulled these materials together. Um, and, and rightly so, because they uh, have catchy titles like, quote, the Freedom of Information Act wears no clothes, quote, that, uh, that today would have been rewarded with something very different than the 98-0 Senate confirmation vote that he received at the time. Uh, so these binders include no fewer than about 30 uh, articles on administrative law, including some that were important contributions to scholarship in the field. Uh, a couple other reprints that caught my attention. Uh, one's uh, a symposium that he chaired at AEI titled, quote, A Constitutional Convention, How Well Would It Work? Uh, the participants were my father, Paul Bator, uh, his dear friend Walter Burns, and uh, Gerald Gunther. Uh, there was another titled, quote, Unsettled Questions on Regulatory Reform uh, with, among others, uh, Dick Wiley, Lloyd Cutler, my father, and Stephen Breyer. Um, these were both from 1979. Uh, panels on both of these topics were held somewhere this year and will be again next year, but if these panelists didn't settle those unsettled questions, it seems unlikely that any of us will. Why did my father love administrative law? I'm afraid I have few special insights, although I know it was in part a deeply personal matter to him. It affected his driving. Specifically, it affected the speed <laughs> at which he could drive. If you live in McLean, Virginia, as my father did for decades, your route into the district is uh, down the George Washington Memorial Parkway, which follows the Potomac River and some beautiful parkland to Roslyn, Virginia, uh, with Georgetown on the other side. The problem is that the GW Parkway gets horribly backed up with traffic by about 8 in the morning every weekday, and it prevented my father from driving to work in the manner that his Italian heritage demanded. As, by the way, Justice Alito confirmed in one of those videos. Uh, I sometimes would drive into the district with my father as a teenager and a young man, and I learned uh, from him on these trips that this interference with his driving was due to one man, and his name was David Bazelon. It was explained to me, as we sat there in traffic, that in a rational world, which is to say the world envisioned by our framers, there would be another bridge across the Potomac between Roslyn and Georgetown, crossing the river at the so-called Three Sisters Islands. This is what Congress wanted. It had enacted a statute directing it. 
It is what the Department of Transportation wanted. It had begun construction. It is what the environment wanted. Because if you built this massive bridge by plowing down part of historic Georgetown and then erecting it on top of some of the parkland, you would reduce traffic, thereby reducing emissions, and thereby, we now know, uh, reducing global warming in the environmental Armageddon that awaits us. What, sto what stopped the Transportation Department construction of the bridge? It was this man, this David Bazelon, my father told me, chief judge of the DC Circuit, in a series of rulings and litigation brought by Georgetown residents in which I learned the will of the Congress and the executive were thwarted through the imposition of requirements of administrative procedure that had no basis in the APA or the organic statutes. Um, this was a series of decisions before the Supreme Court's seminal Vermont Yankee decision. And so in 1972, certiorari was denied in uh, DC Federation of Civic Associations versus Volpe, forever impeding my father's commute, but giving him ample time and material for contemplation in his morning commute of the relationship between the courts, Congress, and executive agencies. <laughs> there are other reasons, more important reasons, actually, that my father cared deeply about administrative law. Principally this, nothing shaped his approach to the law more than his view of the judge's role in, uh, the relationship to the in relation to the legislature and the executive. And administrative law is the day-to-day -day practiced and study of that relationship. That's why the passion that he brought to uh, a case such as Morrison v. Olson, which is a case about administrative law writ large, is the same passion that he brought to many other uh, administrative law decisions, including some that we'll hear about today. We couldn't ask for a better panel to lead that discussion. Uh, Ronald Cass is Dean Emeritus of the Boston University School of Law, where he served as Dean for 14 years. He's a former Vice Chairman of the US International Trade Commission and a widely respected arbitrator in international commercial disputes. He's chairman of the Center for the Rule of Law and president of Cass Associates, a legal consulting firm. His scholarly writing has addressed a broad variety of topics, including administrative law, and he's a member of the Council of the Administrative Conference of the United States, or again, ACUS. He, uh, Ron joined my father in teaching administrative law and constitutional law in summer courses over many years, and he and his wife, Susie, have been uh, dear friends to both my parents uh, including, importantly, over this last year. Lisa Heinzerling is the Justice William J. Brennan, Jr. Professor of Law at Georgetown University Law Center and is also taught as a visiting professor at Harvard and Yale. She's a leading authority on administrative law, environmental law, and food law. She has written prolifically on these topics. At the beginning of the Obama administration, uh, Professor Heinzerling served at EPA, first as climate counsel to the administrator and then as associate administrator of the Office of Policy. She played a principal role in briefing in the Supreme Court's decision uh, in uh, Massachusetts versus EPA, which as many of you know, concerned the regulation of greenhouse gases by the EPA. She is a public member of ACUS. Uh, Paul Clement is a partner at Kirkland and Ellis. He's also a distinguished lecturer in law at the Georgetown University Law Center. Uh, as I think you all know, he served as Solicitor General for three years and for several years prior to that as uh, Principal Deputy Solicitor General. He's argued uh, more than 80 cases before the Supreme Court, including many celebrated cases, among them McConnell uh, v. FC, FEC, the Hobby Lobby case, and the first Affordable Care Act case. Paul clerked for my father, and one of my father's delights in his later, year, later years was having Paul appear before him 
as an advocate. Paul's also been very generous with his time in speaking about my father this last year. Um, and uh, Paul co-chaired with Judge Jeff Sutton of the Sixth Circuit uh, something called a, the Resolutions Committee, which prepared a document called uh, Resolutions, which were presented to and adopted by the Supreme Court uh, earlier this month. Uh, that document is available on the Supreme Court's website. It is, I think, the single best summary I've read, at least the single best short summary I've ever read of my father's jurisprudence, and really of, of my father's life. And it's beautifully written. I commend it to all of you. Finally, uh, Donald Elliott is professor of law at Yale Law School, and for years has been among the most highly regarded environmental law professors in the country. He's been on the Yale Law faculty since 1981, and currently teaches environmental law, energy law, and civil procedure. He is also senior of counsel at the Covington and Burling firm, where he co-chairs its environmental practice group. And from 1989 to 91, he also served at the EPA as assistant administrator and general counsel. Uh, Don also is involved with ACUS. He's a senior fellow. Uh, and he testifies frequently before Congress on uh, environmental issues and has written important scholarship on the Chevron case. I f must note finally before he does that he clerked for Judge Bazelon. <laughs> I don't know exactly what year. I think it had to have been later than 1972 though. But it's possible that his active interest in environmental law results from a felt need to atone for uh, congestion and uh, potential environmental damage arising from arising from his clerkship. So with that, uh, we'll begin with Ron Cass. Thanks, Gene. Uh, it's a delight to be here, a delight to participate in anything at the Federal Society, but particularly an administrative law uh, practice group session. Uh, Gene mentioned the uh, GW Parkway as the route his father took uh, going in to work. I have to begin with one uh, short story uh, that involves the GW Parkway. Uh, a friend of mine was uh, driving home one night when he got a, a panicked call from his wife who said, where are you? And he said, I'm on the GW Parkway. She said, well, for God's sake, be careful. Uh, I heard on the news that some maniac uh, is headed the wrong way, that uh, a, a car is headed the wrong way on the parkway. And my friend said, a car? There are hundreds of them headed the wrong way. Uh, that, that was not Justice Scalia, but it, it could have been. Uh, because he was someone who always followed his own course. He was not someone who was going to go with the flow wherever it was. And his course when it came to the law was a course marked out by a passion for the rule of law, a real respect for separating power to keep any government official from having too much unchecked discretion. Because unchecked discretion is the enemy of liberty. And for Justice Scalia, the structure of the Constitution, the structure that divided and separated power and that assigned it in certain ways and made sure that important decisions were made in ways that minimize the chance of too much power resting in one set of hands or one group of officials. Those were the key elements for him in looking at how law ought to work and how the law he was given to implement did work. When we talk about 
the rule of law. For Justice Scalia, that meant rules, binding rules, clear rules, rules that could guide the implementation by each class of people who were affected by the law. That was not something that you could have with a balancing test. It was not something you could have with a fuzzy general uh, set of rules. And he had ways of encapsulating that in different descriptions and discussions over time. He understood from having been in government in the uh, Nixon administration, the Ford administration, and then observing government over a long period of time and seeing the fruits of government disputes before him as a judge, he understood that the key fight in nearly every case was a fight over power. When we talk about administrative law, we're talking about the allocation of power and the constraint of power, and those are concepts that were very dear to him and that informed his approaches to the law. Interpretation flowed from the same root. Textualism and looking at statutes is a way of confining discretion. It's a way of cabining the freedom of people to extract certain things in ways the founders and the founding documents didn't intend from our government. Originalism similarly in the constitutional arena was a way of cabining judicial discretion. And for him, keeping judges in check was just as important as keeping congressmen and executive officials in check. No government official should have undue power, unchecked power, too much discretion. He understood there were limits to the interpretive approaches he took that none would be perfectly good at accomplishing the ends that he wanted to accomplish. But these were tools, they were necessary tools, they were essential tools to keep the government operating as it was designed. I wanna talk about just three elements of the administrative law doctrine that reflected his approaches and that stayed, some of them stayed constant over time, some got stronger over time and some changed in important ways over time. I'm gonna say just a, a brief word about standing deference and delegation. Standing doctrine for a lot of administrative law mavens is a mass of incoherent decisions that you have to teach your students so they can say they had it. But there is nothing meaningful you can say about it. For some administrative law types, standing is a needless impediment to getting to the important substantive issues you want to address. And for some judges, standing is a doctrine that gets in the way of protecting people's rights. For Justice Scalia, and for Judge Scalia, and for Professor Scalia, standing was a critical element of keeping judges in check. If you look back at Alexander Hamilton's uh, Federalist 78. M many of you may know that before he was a Broadway star, Alexander <laughs> Hamilton was a historical figure. And, and one of the things he wrote was Federalist 78, which explained that the judicial power, which extended to telling Congress when a law was wrong and extended to telling executive officers when their decisions were wrong, the judicial power was something that was not to be feared because it would only be exercised 
in cases that were properly brought before it involving a legal claim when there was an issue that had to be decided by the court. There was no general power for judges to constitute a body of supervision or revision sitting over the other branches. De Tocqueville, when he came to America and looked at how our system worked, commented very pithily on the importance of limiting judges to deciding cases and the Constitution's vesting of the Article III power over a set of cases and controversies was a critical way of keeping judges in check. So for Justice Scalia, standing law had a very important function to fulfill and that was keeping judges from being asked to simply revisit things that people didn't like the outcome from the political branches of. For him, looking at injury in fact, looking at causality, looking at redressability, these were the essential elements of making sure courts didn't overreach and weren't asked to do too much. His decisions on standing are models of clarity. He went through and very carefully assured that in each decision, he had looked at the facts, made sure they fit the elements of standing, and if they didn't, he would call people out on that. When we got to the part in the separation of powers class where we talked about standing, he would always start with Flast against Cohen and talk about the two nexus tests there. And he would then stop and say to the students, the dual nexus test, woo. Um, and he did that each time we got to the case. And, and the students would laugh each time, which I think uh, did not uh, dissuade him from doing it again. Not that he would ever play uh, to the audience. Deference was a, another thing that was dear uh, to his heart. Uh, and he looked at deference as a way of also keeping judges in check. But for him, deference wasn't simply a way of letting executive officials tell you what the law was. For him, it was a way for courts to say what the law was. And when the law gave discretion to an agency, letting the agency exercise its discretion subject only to a check on reasonableness. So he was one of the biggest champions of the Chevron doctrine, but at the same time, he was one of the most vigorous applicants of the court's power to say what the law is at step one. Um, ultimately, uh, his views on that evolved. Um, I, I'm sure more about that will be said. Last, delegation. Delegation was something where he did not uh, think there was a suitable test for saying what could be delegated and what couldn't, and in the absence of a clear test, he was not willing to apply a non-delegation doctrine, but he did find ways of constraining delegations through making sure that it was a discrete commitment of authority to an agency conditioned on it being something connected to what the agency's fundamental point was, what its constitutional role was. And I'm sure we will have much more to say about all those topics later on. Thank you. Thanks to the Federalist Society for having me here this morning. 
I'm going to talk about uh, the evolution of Justice Scalia's views on Chevron deference. Uh, I believe Justice Scalia was as much or more a champion of Chevron deference than any other justice. He, in uh, quite recent years, vehemently criticized the Supreme Court when it turned away from Chevron deference, when it displaced the framework entirely, in some cases, in need. Uh, he wrote, of course, City of Arlington, in which he rejected the idea that one doesn't apply Chevron deference in cases uh, deciding the scope of the agency's own jurisdiction. And so there are many cases in which he was a fierce champion of, of Chevron deference. And yet here's the puzzle. In his last two terms on the court, he wrote two uh, opinions that rejected Sh Chevron deference in two important contexts. These cases are, that I'll talk about, are Utility Air Regulatory Group and Michigan uh, versus EPA. And so you might think that he was beginning to evolve from being a champion of Chevron deference to a skeptic of Chevron deference. And yet, I, I'm not sure this is right. I actually don't think that's right. Instead, I think the two decisions that I have in mind didn't reflect a general skepticism about Chevron, but instead reflected an antipathy to regulation. These cases, uh, Justice Scalia's opinions in these cases, went beyond the cases at hand and seemed to state uh, broad anti-regulatory interpretive principles. Indeed, I argue in a recent uh, or forthcoming article called The Power Canons that I believe the Supreme Court in these cases embraced uh, new principles of statutory interpretation. And yet here's another puzzle. I think these cases embraced canons that are what Justice Scalia had earlier called dice-loading canons of interpretation. That is, canons that aren't serious efforts to decide what Congress likely meant by using particular language, but are instead uh, reflections of a judge's own philosophy. And so, Again, it seems uh, a surprise that these were uh, opinions from Justice Scalia. He had criticized normative or substantive canons of statutory interpretation, and yet here are two cases uh, in which I believe he created uh, two such canons. More specifically, in Utility Air Regulatory Group versus EPA, uh, Justice Scalia stated that with an agency charged with administering a long existing statute, asserts regulatory authority it has not previously used in a matter involving large economic and political consequences, its interpretation will be disfavored. In Michigan versus EPA, Justice Scalia wrote for the court that when an agency charged with administering a statute interprets an ambiguous provision to permit the agency not to consider costs when deciding whether to regulate, the agency will likely lose as having acted unreasonably. And so these are the interpretive principles that go beyond those cases that I believe were embraced by Justice Scalia and by the court in, uh, in these two cases. If anything, I think the second principle, and we see this in the MetLife uh, decision, uh, if anything, I think Michigan versus EPA will have the most uh, 
most broadest, I guess, significance in cases to come. In that opinion, the court looked at the word appropriate in the Clean Air Act and found that it required the agency to consider costs before regulating. The word appropriate appears 8,000 times in the United States Code. So this is a principle that, uh, that may well have, uh, have real influence in the um, days to come. And yet, in those cases, even though I, I can see these principles, uh, in those cases, there was no real effort by the court to argue that these uh, principles were based on what Congress likely meant in using particular words. Instead, I believe these cases were telling Congress what kind of clarity it needed to use if it wanted to produce particular uh, substantive results. And so that if an issue was a significant issue, and if it was an issue that was relevant to an old statute, then Congress needed to use particularly plain language in giving an agency authority over that issue. Uh, if uh, uh, the agency was deciding whether to regulate and it had a broad authority as in uh, under under authority to regulate inappropriate circumstances, then it needed to, uh, Congress needed to speak clearly if it wanted to give the agency a different kind of authority. And so, to me, the problem with these canons is not that they departed from Chevron deference. We could have arguments all day long about whether Chevron was, was correct or not. It seems to me the main problem with these new canons is that they're asymmetrical. They're activated by regulation and probably not by regulatory passivity or uh, deregulation. And it seems to me this is not an objective not an objective choice. It puts a thumb on the scales in favor of regulatory passivity and against regulatory ambition. I think one feature, this is possible, I'll just put this out there, one feature of Chevron deference that might have appealed to many people was that it didn't seem to depend on whose ox was gored. That is, if an agency in one administration embraced a reasonable interpretation of a statute, the agency in the next administration, perhaps with a different regulatory philosophy, could embrace a different kind of interpretation. So there was a kind of, at least it appeared, a kind of neutrality about Chevron that may have appealed to, uh, to a number of people. If you take that feature of Chevron away, as I believe these two cases do, then Chevron becomes a means of deferring to administrations with passive or deregulatory agendas and of not deferring to agencies with ambitious regulatory agendas. I think this is exactly the opposite of the kind of neutral interpretive principle that Justice Scalia otherwise embraced. Thanks. Uh, Lisa, thank you, and um, let me uh, pose a question or two now, and uh, uh, let me focus on Michigan v. EPA, because I think that the UARG case and, uh, and Whitman, perhaps, and some others that you uh, were referring to uh, would be good cases to discuss as part of a, a broader colloquy in the group. Michigan v. EPA uh, was a case where, actually, I think all of the justices agreed that consideration of costs was appropriate in rulemaking. 
Uh, Justice uh, Kagan in dissent, uh, as you've noted in your piece, was fairly emphatic on that point. And I have to say, I found that decision uh, uh, unsurprising to the extent that it said uh, simply that we've always, under the APA, uh, considered the pros and cons of uh, what the agency's doing. The agency's got to look, is this a good thing or a bad thing? Uh, what's good about it? What's bad about it? In other words, what are the costs and what are the benefits? And to, I had actually long thought that just kind of as a matter of State Farm arbitrary capricious review, if an agency was heedless of the consequences of its action, it was going to get in some trouble. So um, given the unanim uh, unanimity of Michigan EPA and that sort of historical pedigree to considering pros and cons, um, is it fair to put Michigan VEPA, EPA in the same bailiwick maybe as uh, you would put the UARG decision? Yes. <laughs> Elaborate, please. <laughs> there was a long, a long uh, debate in regulatory circles and on the court about the relevance of costs in uh, regulatory decisions. And that debate, before Michigan versus EPA, that debate had either sided against considering costs under pr predominantly environmental statutes or at least it said you have the discretion whether to consider costs. I think Michigan versus EPA is brand new insofar as it for the first time required an agency, given ambiguous language, to consider costs. And on this point, I believe uh, Justice Kagan is also wrong. Um, and uh, I think her, her statement that it would be uh, arbitrary if they hadn't considered costs at any point in the way, I think is, is simply has no basis in law. Much of administrative law is about deciding what factors agencies may not consider when they make their decisions. There's an irony about Michigan versus EPA insofar as if an agency is given a charge like regulate when appropriate and they're required to consider everything, so everything's relevant, nothing's dispositive, that agency has more authority, more authority, more discretion than an agency whose choices are limited or an agency that has uh, on its own, by its own decision, constrained its discretion in the way that EPA had done in Michigan. So I, I, I find it ironic to think of uh, this uh, decision as, as one that um, constrains agencies in some at some level, it's one that frees them up to do what they want. There's also, do I have time for 30 more seconds? You have 32 seconds. Awesome. There had been a long, long, long controversy in the DC circuit about the meaning of this Clean Air Act provision. And for 10, 15 years, EPA had lost cases because it under-regulated rather than over-regulated. And so it's, it strikes me, again, as just strange and, and uh, disquieting that at the end of that time, EPA would be denounced by the Supreme Court for following the lead of the main court interpreting the provision that had, had um, brought before the court in Michigan. Well, thanks, Lisa. It certainly is an important decision and one we can talk about more uh, in the course of this morning. Um, let me turn it over to Paul. So thank you. It's wonderful to be here. It's also somewhat remarkable that so many people have come out on a beautiful day to pack a room about and hear about administrative law. And, you know, I, I really think, although I probably shouldn't say this because I gratefully accepted the invitation, but, I mean, 
I almost think there may be a labeling problem here, okay? Because as Lee suggested, I mean, administrative law risks being almost an oxymoron. Uh, but it may be actually worse than that. It just may sound really boring. I mean, I, I remember when I was in law school and some older law school students told me that, you know, I should apply to the D.C. Circuit. And then they described the D.C. Circuit's doctrine in terms of ad law. And I, I, at first I thought it was like a big joke that, that they were trying to trick me. Uh, because I just at first blush, if you, if you think about ad law, it doesn't sound inherently interesting. So then here's the puzzle. Why would Antonin Scalia, uh, you know, with all due respect to the Dos Equis guy, you know, the most interesting man in the world, <laughs> why would Antonin Scalia be interested in administrative law? And how is it, as, you know, as, as, as Gene alluded to, he wrote lively articles in a journal called Regulation. I mean, how is that even possible? <laughs> and the answer is that there's a misnomer here. This really isn't administrative law. It is the separation of powers. And at least for Justice Scalia, I think it was ours, as in almost all his jurisprudence, but certainly in his administrative law jurisprudence, it was all about the separation of powers and apparently traffic. Uh, but, but so I, I want to sort of use that as a little bit of a jumping off point then to talk about his evolution on deference. And, I, you know, I probably come out at a slightly different place than Lisa at the end, which is I actually think that although Justice Scalia was very much, for much of his judicial career, one of the foremost proponents of Chevron deference, I think by the end of his career, uh, that was very much eroding. And I think he was potentially uh, on the verge of really reconsidering that in a pretty fundamental way. And I want to make that point really through the lens of a closely related form of deference, so-called our or seminal rock deference, where he did fundamentally uh, evolve in his views and change his mind. So just to sort of set the stage here, I mean, as to Chevron, um, you know, as interesting and as important as Justice Scalia is, uh, he didn't invent Chevron deference. He sort of, that came before he came to the D.C. Circuit. And I think he always accepted it and embraced it uh, largely because I think he tended to view the separation of powers question here as, all right, congressional statutes are going to be ambiguous. I mean, there's just no stopping that. So then the question becomes, who is going to fill in those ambiguities and is it better for it to be the courts or the executive branch at the margin? And for a separation of powers student and teacher, you know, there was something very much to be said for having the relatively more accountable executive branch officials rather than the life tenured judicial officials filling in some of those blanks. But I think his embrace of Chevron deference you know, came with an important caveat from the beginning, which is you, know, you have to ask yourself, like, how many statutes actually are ambiguous? How many statutes actually get you to step two? And I think the answer to that question very much depends on who's interpreting the statute and who's asking that question. And if the person asking that question and answering that, that question is Justice Scalia, there's an awful lot of cases that are going to be decided at step one. 
because, both because of his view of textualism and his respect for the canons of construction, even some statutes that might look at first blush a little ambiguous actually answered the question specifically enough that there wasn't a reservoir of authority for the executive branch agencies. And I do think that perhaps part of his frustration with Chevron over time uh, may be that you know, he didn't get to have the exclusive right to interpret all the statutes and determine whether we were at step one and step two. So let me move <laughs> from talking about Chevron, at least for the time being, to Seminole Rock or our deference. So at this educated group, I probably don't have to lay the foundation for this, but just to be clear, Go for it. Uh, you know, Chevron deference, of course, is uh, the question of when Congress passes an ambiguous statute and the agency interprets it through something with force of law, like a notice and comment rulemaking, for example, and clears up the ambiguity, the doctrine says that in that circumstance, of course, you can defer to the agency's action. But what happens, which is as equally inevitable as ambiguous statutes if the regulation itself is ambiguous, then if the agency clears up the ambiguity in its regulation, do they get deference for that? And the Supreme Court has long answered that question, yes, they do get deference for that, and that is, of course, Seminole Rock or our deference. Now, Justice Scalia in 1997 wrote a unanimous opinion for the court called Our, um, and Our and Seminole Rock deference have become sort of synon synonymous, which is a little bit odd, because the real innovation of the Our case was not that it just sort of, you know, kind of reaffirmed Seminole Rock, because if you look at this unanimous decision, it sort of breezily confirms that, yes, deference to the agency's administration of the am regulatory ambiguity is just the law. To the extent our advanced the law, it extended that principle even to amicus briefs filed by the government in that very case. So you didn't even have to be some, any kind of real level of formality in the agency's interpretation of its regulation, even an amicus brief was sufficient. Now, I have to say that in my time in the Solicitor General's office, when I authored many an amicus brief, I thought that was pretty cool. Um, but Justice Scalia eventually started to have his doubts. And in a way that I think actually shows a, a very careful justice at work, uh, he first sort of planted the seeds of his doubts in a concurring opinion where he did not definitively overrule or suggest that he would overrule our or Seminole Rock deference. But in 2011, in the Talk America case, he certainly uh, plants the seeds for that reconsideration. And he starts by saying, including with a reference to the Our case that he wrote, he says, quote, I have in the past uncritically accepted that rule. Now that could not have been an easy line for Justice Scalia to write, because he's a person who didn't uncritically accept anything. Uh, but, you know, he had to admit that, and if you, if you go back and read the Our decision, I think you will see that he, you know, it was a pretty breezy opinion. Uh, Justice Scalia, when I clerked for him, and I've heard him say it publicly, uh, often, you know, has said that the court's worst decisions are unanimous decisions, because there's no dissent there to sort of discipline the majority writer. And I, 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 I hate to say it, but I think Our might, might show that that rule applied even to Justice Scalia. 
Uh, and so, and, and I think he really then, in the Talk America case, in a very tentative way, planted the seeds for the reconsideration by very much focusing on the differences between our deference and Chevron deference. So he continued very much to accept Chevron deference, but he said the, the critical difference between the two doctrines is that when Congress passes an ambiguous statute, they are ceding authority to another branch of government. They're ceding authority to the executive branch to fill in the gaps. And that creates a separation of powers incentive for Congress not to do it because they're giving away their power by creating ambiguity. And he pointed out that in the executive uh, regulatory context and their ability to interpret their own regulations, uh, there's no similar constraint. What they get for being vague is not ceding some authority, but they get more authority to make a, a decision that's going to get deference, and they can even wait and see exactly how it applies, and at the last minute, sort of roll it out in amicus brief. So after planting the seeds for that position in 2011, in 2013, uh, Justice Scalia goes all the way in the Decker case and says that he would essentially uh, overrule the, uh, the, the, the doctrine of our deference or seminal rock deference. Um, and he does this again in terms that are very specific to the differences between our deference and Chevron deference. I should say one thing here, which is, you know, you see the sense of Justice Scalia really owning up for this sort of decision and his our decision, because throughout this opinion, he talks about it in terms of our deference and not seminal rock deference, even though he really, you know, didn't have to do that. I mean, a lot of justices would have said um, that he would, that they would not go that route. So I, I guess what I would say is in those decisions, again, he focuses on the difference and then he adds one critical element to that, which is that our deference offends yet another principle of separation of powers, which is, quote, the power to write a law and the power to interpret it cannot be in the same hands. So he revisits this topic in 2015 in the Perez case, uh, and here's what I think is interesting, because this time he revisits the issue in the specific context of a longstanding DC rule that said that even though you don't need notice and comment rulemaking for a uh, interpretive rule, uh, if you revoke it and replace it, you need notice and comment for the second one. Now, the court kind of unanimously said that really doesn't make any sense. But Justice Scalia wrote separately to say, essentially express some sympathy with the D.C. Circuit rule, but say that the, the root cause of the problem was actually the degree of deference being given to the executive branch, and again laid at least part of the blame on the Our Doctrine. But what I think is so critical is this time around, uh, he bases his criticism on grounds that are equally applicable to Chevron. And in particular, he focuses on uh, Section 706 and the judicial review provision of the APA. Um, and he, he faults both Chevron and uh, our for never mentioning uh, 706 and its, uh, its definition of the role of the courts. So I'll, I'll, I'll end by reading that provision and making one last observation. So 706 says, the reviewing court shall decide all relevant questions of law, interpret constitutional and statutory provisions, and determine the meaning of the action of the agency. So the critical thing there is there's a statutory provision that specifically says that in reviewing administrative action, that it's the role of the court to interpret the relevant constitutional and statutory provisions. And Justice Scalia emphasizes that in putting yet another stake in our deference. But of course, 706 isn't limited to interpretive rules. 
And it's not limited to agency interpretation of its own rules. And Justice Scalia was equally critical of Chevron paying no mind to 706 as he was to our and Seminole Rock. So I do think as his views evolved on our, uh, I think he also planted the seeds for even a greater reconsideration uh, of, 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 of Chevron. Uh, we obviously didn't get the opportunity to see that, so I can't be proven definitively right or wrong, uh, which is a pretty safe place to be. So thank you. <laughs> Uh, Paul, 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 thank you, and uh, for those of you who uh, missed it at the uh, dinner on uh, Thursday night, Justice Thomas told a wonderful story that I won't give full justice, uh, but he uh, talked about how, uh, as they sat together in the court, uh, he and my father would occasionally lean back, exchange thoughts about uh, arguments and cases before them. And uh, at one point, uh, an advocate was addressing a particular uh, president of the court, uh, uh, and uh, which actually Justice Thomas indicated was, was our. And uh, my father leaned back and looked at Justice Thomas and just shook his head with just complete contempt and said, just probably the single worst decision by this court. And Justice Thomas says he thought about it for a moment and nodded in agreement and looked back and said, yeah, Nino and you wrote it. Um, so just quick question, Paul. I'm, um, there certainly was a reconsideration uh, going on in some of my uh, father's uh, late opinions with respect to deference, and uh, I think it uh, may have had uh, to do in substantial part with something else that was very important to him beyond separation of powers. You, I think you touched on it briefly, uh, but it's rule of law. Uh, you know, I think part of what the court has been observing over the last, uh, and I don't want to lay it at the doorstep of any single administration, over the last 10 years or more, has been uh, more shifting back and forth using the opportunity that Chevron provides to change uh, the law, which results in less clarity and degrades the rule of law. It, it, might that have been an element of what was going on there? No, I, I think it, it, it probably was an element of what was going on, but in a sense, I think you know, it, it, given the precise moment we're, on, we're at, I mean, I think that, you know, one of the things about sort of the separation of powers generally and administrative law in particular is I think you get the best results when you try to think about these questions beyond, behind the veil of partisan ignorance. So if you don't know sort of exactly which party is going to be in which branch of government and can still get to the right answers, um, and, you know, you see this in, in, in the justices' jurisprudence in the sense that, you know, his lone dissent in Morrison became conventional wisdom after a couple of administrations of different parties had to deal with the phenomenon of the independent counsel. So I do think, you know, obviously I think the justices' views were shaped by watching sort of administrations over administrations. And as we sort of think about how some of the doctrines he embraced are going to fare over the next decade or so, I think it's probably a very healthy thing uh, that, you know, we're not in a situation where one party is going to be in the executive branch for an extended, extended period of time and maybe even think that that's going to last for a really long time because they've looked at this electoral college thing you may have heard something about. So I, I, I just think that, you know, we're at a time where, you know, maybe things are very well situated for the whole court to be willing to take a fresh view of these doctrines of, you know, deference and exactly how much sense that makes. 
Thank you, Paul. Don. Well, thank you very much. Uh, <clears throat> I did not know Justice uh, Scalia well, but uh, when he was appointed to the D.C. Circuit, um, I was called in to teach his administrative law class at the University of Chicago in 1983 in my second or third year of teaching. And I did run into him from time to time. And he said two things to me that I have spent much of my career pondering. Um, first, he said, I always told Justice Stevens he didn't understand Chevron even though he wrote it. Uh, so that's a typical Justice Scalia line, and I spent a lot of time trying to figure out what he, what he meant by it. And then the other thing uh, he would say to me frequently is, Don, you, you shouldn't be writing about Chevron. You should be writing about United States versus Meade. Um, and of course, I found that very hard to understand because uh, Justice Scalia was the only uh, dissenter in, in Meade, and uh, which on the surface, appeared to cut back on Chevron by saying it only applied uh, to certain decisions by agencies. And he, as the lone dissenter, uh, would uh, uh, have applied the same test across the board to all agency decisions, namely reasonableness. Um, and I had thought about this for years and years and years, and I was going to announce today the solution to the puzzle which was namely that uh, Justice Scalia never met a statute which he didn't think he knew what it meant. Um, and unfortunately, this brilliant idea was announced by Paul Clement immediately prior uh, to... <laughs> so this is a, kind of a nightmare for me because... But um, I do think that uh, Justice Scalia was uh, uh, quite a skeptic of Chevron. I disagree with my friend Lisa Heinzwang about that. And I think his wonderful article in the Duke uh, Law uh, Journal in, in 1989 uh, about judicial deference to administrative interpretations of law is what I would call full-throated skepticism about why courts should be deferring to uh, uh, agencies. What I think he meant by saying Justice Stevens didn't understand Chevron is really that Chevron was intended originally to deal with relatively small interstitial questions. Um, Richard Lazarus has gotten into Justice Blackmun's notes of the conference uh, following the argument in Chevron in 1984. And Blackmun's notes have uh, Justice Stevens saying the following, well, I say if we don't understand the statute, we ought to go with the agency. So I've often wondered what American law would be like if justices actually had to announce their own opinions from the bench rather than having professional opinion writers like law clerks. Uh, I think that insight by uh, Justice Stevens, which could have easily been decided under uh, a precedent, NRDC versus Train from 1974, which is actually cited in, in Chevron, the so-called complex statute uh, exception. Uh, it, it became a much broader and much more important doctrine as it uh, was stated in terms of the famous two-step uh, process. And because it was a simple formula, uh, many courts uh, applied it very, very broadly. I think the high watermark is in 2005 in the Brand X Internet case by uh, Justice Thomas, where he interprets Chevron as saying that a federal court is required to accept the agency's construction of a statute, 
even if the agency's reading differs from what the court believes to be the best statutory interpretation. So as, as Paul said, really an extraordinary notion that, that the agency's reading of the statute uh, trumps what the courts uh, would have said on their, uh, on their own. Um, I agree with what uh, Lisa said about the Im importance of the UARG uh, decision, um, and I think it has gradually become, in the hands of uh, Chief Justice Roberts, the so-called important questions doctrine, where there's a presumption that there are some questions that are so important uh, that uh, the court will presume that Congress intended the Supreme Court rather than the agency to, uh, uh, to decide them. Uh, with regard to our, um, I think this is a doctrine that Justice Scalia largely created but later came to uh, regret. As Paul mentioned, uh, he criticized himself for having accepted it uh, uncritically. What a great and unusual thing. Uh, admitting that one is wrong, uh, particularly in a Supreme Court justice. I think that's refreshing and, and very, very uh, uh, positive. It's, it's welcome in a father, too. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was going to say, Gene, uh, that I, I thought Justice Scalia's approach to Chevron was kind of like dis, di, di, disciplining unruly children, <laughs> but I decided in, under the present company not to say that. But in any event, um, the essence of the Auer decision is really stated in a later case, Gonzalez versus Oregon. It often happens that looking back, the court sees more clearly than at the time. And what they say about Auer in, in Gonzalez is because a regulation, because the issue is a creature of the secretary's own regulations, his interpretation of it is controlling unless plainly erroneous or inconsistent with the regulation. Quoting from Justice Scalia's opinion in, in our, when you think about it, that's an absolute non sequitur. Just as a logical matter, the fact that the agency has created the regulation doesn't necessarily mean that it can mean anything that the agency wants to as long as it's within the, uh, within the outer limits of the, of the wording. On the contrary, if one takes the uh, classic Hart and Sachs argument that a law is easy to change if the court gets it wrong, it actually should probably be an argument in the other direction, that uh, because agencies can so easily change their, their regulations, uh, it seems to me it's not really an argument that we should always defer to their interpretations, but quite the contrary. Uh, if we're concerned about the president's pen and phone, uh, there are even more pens and phones in the uh, administrative branch. Uh, and I, I see uh, the Auer Doctrine as being much more significant than Chevron as a potential threat to uh, uh, democratic government, particularly after uh, Perez versus mortgage bankers, which provides not even notice and comment on changing uh, administrative rules. And it's, as Paul noted, uh, Justice Scalia in his concurrence um, uh, in Perez specifically called upon the court to uh, abandon the uh, uh, our uh, doctrine uh, and he built on uh, his uh, his lone dissent in, in Decker in 20, 2013. Uh, in my view, we should have an approach to administrative interpretations of their regulations that's very similar to the doctrine uh, of interpretation uh, in the Supreme Court generally namely that words should have their public meanings. So in the same way that 
Ben Sass argued last night that most of us have come around to the view of originalism, that words have their, their public meanings and understandings. It does seem to me the same should be true for administrative uh, interpretations. And one particularly clear example of what I think is wrong with the Our Doctrine is that where, where an agency interprets its rule in a preamble to a proposed rule and later changes it, it seems to me that's almost bait and switch. You comment on a rule with the agency telling you this is what it means, and then under the Our Doctrine, it can change it to something else uh, later. So I think the Supreme Court has got to fix that. Um, I hope that when they fix it, they fix it not on a narrow basis, but with a, a broader reconceptualization of the Our Doctrine. I had hopes, uh, there, was, there were three cases up for cert uh, this year in which uh, the Our Doctrine was specifically uh, subject to uh, being reconsidered. Uh, the Supreme Court granted uh, cert in the Gloucester County case, the transgender bathroom case, but it specifically decided not to grant cert with regard to the question about overruling our. I do think our needs to be reconsidered, and I regret that we won't have Justice Scalia's wisdom to help us get out of the our jungle with apologies to anyone who considers my metaphorical reference to a jungle as a microaggression. <laughs> <laughs> Th thank you. Thank you, Don. Uh, just to, I guess, add to the uh, landscape here, in uh, 2013, uh, my father wrote a very strong uh, application of the Chevron Doctrine in the city of Arlington uh, case uh, uh, over a, a very forcefully worded dissent by uh, the Chief Justice. And Lisa, you talk about the Chief Justice's dissent in uh, your forthcoming article. It really is an unusual dissent for the degree of concern it expresses about the, really about the government that we have today. Uh, but uh, nonetheless, my father was prepared to stand firm and, uh, you know, one might argue, extend uh, Chevron even to the question of whether uh, an agency has jurisdiction. That, you know, his view is that there's deference there as well. Now, he had written on that topic uh, decades before when he was on the D.C. Circuit and said, that's a line you can't draw. I tend to agree. Uh, point being that uh, as recently as 2013, when an opportunity presented itself to cabin Chevron, he very forcefully passed on it. Um, let me uh, just throw out a proposition, be interested in the panel's comment on it, and, and that is um, it certainly makes sense to evaluate a relatively, uh, in some respects, new legal doctrine as it's uh, applied and operates over uh, the ensuing decades. And um, I think one way to view both how the court has been acting towards Chevron uh, and including the UARG decision, the Brown and Williamson case and some of the others, Lisa, that you write about, is that the justices watched uh, as in a period of divided government, Chevron deference was used both to change the law more and more frequently, but also to make much larger changes in the law that weren't uh, the sort of interstitial changes that Don referred to. So the um, so-called important questions doctrine, what we had in UARG was a really very significant alteration in uh, the EPA's approach to, approach to the Clean Air Act. Uh, likewise, in the MCI telecommunications case, we had a very significant alteration in the regulatory regime that was being administered by the FCC. Uh, and in both cases, the court declined Chevron deference in part on the ground that this was just such a, 
uh, significant uh, change that you wouldn't expect it to be a matter delegated uh, to the agency. So um, one could approach that as a sort of interpretive question, but uh, I, I'm wondering the degree to which uh, the court became increasingly concerned with these enormous changes being made to the administrative process rather through, than through legislation as you would ordinarily expect, which in turn was itself a result of uh, a long period of divided government where Congress just couldn't get the job done. Well, if I can jump in on that, I, I, I think that all of these really tie back to the same root. You know, if you look at, at a case like City of Arlington, uh, what Justice Scalia was saying is not that we shouldn't worry about expanding jurisdiction, but that if you have a court actually reading the statute and saying what the statute means, that that should cabin the jurisdiction right. that the agency have. It should cabin the discretion. Have. Same thing when you look at you know, a, a case like, like uh, UARG, or when you look at a case like Brown-Williamson, or when you look at a case like Whitman, in all of those cases, the same principle applies. He's saying in each of them that the court ought to look at the statute, see what the statute means, and if it has said that there is discretion in the agency, give the agency that discretion. But if the agency is asserting a discretion that comes from a new meaning of the statute, that you know, in a case like Brown-Williamson, a meaning that the agency had denied for decades, that the Congress had repeatedly had opportunity to adopt and never adopted, and that previously no one had thought was in the law. It, it is simply, the, the hiding elephants and mouse holes is, is a pretty good way of capturing the thought that if that change really reflected what was intended, what was understood, it would have been discovered uh, previously. Let me have one, just, just one other thing, and that is on um, uh, Don's comment about uh, your father saying that uh, Justice Stevens didn't understand what, what Chevron meant, even though he, he wrote it. Um, I, I think it, it, it's quite clear when you read Chevron that what uh, Justice Stevens and the court were saying is that here's, we determine what the law is, but, but here is an area where uh, the law seems to be giving discretion to an agency. The unclarity is part of a, an understanding that this is not something important on which we have a defined a meaning. Uh, but that doesn't mean that there aren't areas where the law isn't clear, and it doesn't mean there aren't areas where the law very consciously says, here's how far you can go and no further. The Stevens opinion emphasizes in Chevron so much the policy expertise on that issue, on the bubble question, that it, it's, it's pretty clear he's talking about giving deference to a policy determination, not to a legal interpretation. And, and uh, Justice Scalia would distinguish that from a comment that, that his colleague Ken Davis made. Uh, Ken Davis, uh, who is my administrative law professor, once said that a Supreme Court case, uh, although unanimous, uh, was one that spoke with little or no authority because it contradicted his treatise. Uh, I, 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 that, that was Vermont Yankee. Yeah. Yeah. Lisa? Um, I would just say that uh, Chevron itself grew up in an era of divided government. 
right? And, and uh, that it's worth remembering that Chevron itself was a decision about the triggering of a NSR, PSD, New Source Review, Pre Prevention of Significant Deterioration Program of the Clean Air Act. Not the hugest question under the Clean Air Act by anybody's lights. That's also the Utility Air Regulatory Group case question about the same per permitting program and the triggering of that program. And the reason I say this is that I don't know of a neutral way to decide when a question is a significant question, a question of enough economic and political importance that we take it away from the agency, and when it's not. And my suspicion, as I suggested in my opening uh, remarks, is that it'll turn on one's own priors, one's own political viewpoint, more than it'll turn on the meaning of the statute. Don? I, I think in some ways one of the most revealing things that the Supreme that has been said in the Supreme Court in recent years uh, took place in the argument in the uh, Obamacare case, the Sebelius case, when uh, counsel was making an argument uh, based on uh, the classic Hart and Sachs notion that the court shouldn't worry much about statutory constructions because Congress can simply change them. And Justice Kennedy uh, stopped counsel and said, well, is that a hypothetical Congress or the Congress we actually have? <laughs> uh, and I, I think from some of the discussions I've had with members of the Supreme Court, they, they have viewed Chevron as a way to keep the trains running in a situation of divided government where, the, where they perceive the legislature as being incapable of performing the policy decisions that it was originally intended to be making. I think we're gonna see a very big change now in the current administration when it's become possible to uh, legislate uh, again. Um, and I think that um, uh, doctrines like the Chevron Doctrine, uh, we would expect to be uh, somewhat more constrained in a situation in which the legislature is again functioning uh, uh, a little bit more actively than it has in the, in, the, in the past. We needed to have these decisions made. I think the Supreme Court perceived that Congress was not making them, uh, and so the alternatives were either to have them made by the agency or the, or the court. Thanks, Don. I'm going to uh, throw uh, it open to questions from the floor in just a moment. I just had one more I wanted to ask myself. I would ask for those of you with questions to, to please uh, make them questions. And um, there are many thoughtful people in the room, um, but uh, those that have been invited to share their thoughts at some length are the people seated on the panel with me. But uh, we, <laughs> we, we do welcome your questions. Uh, the one I wanted to throw out, and it touches on something that Paul mentioned, but I, I don't mean to necessarily put Paul on the spot. Uh, and, and that is, it has certainly seemed that there are a number of justices on the court that are dissatisfied in one way or another, uh, in one respect or another, uh, with doctrines of deference, but there hasn't been, uh, that I can tell, clear convergence around a particular uh, uh, criticism or a particular deference, deference doctrine that might be the one to fall. So, for example, my father... Uh, in uh, you know, most cases remained a stalwart defender of Chevron, even as, uh, for example, Justice Thomas was very critical of it. Um, the question I guess I had for the panelists is whether they see a particular uh, deference doctrine uh, around which a consensus might confer, uh, converge uh, of five justices to uh, change the law in a significant way, or whether instead we might 
uh, remain in a circumstance where a lot of the justices ha have concerns with one form of deference or another but can't come to agreement on one that they'd like to significantly alter? Well, I, I think the significance of the Chevron Doctrine is really dependent on how large a realm you think is covered by Chevron 1 as opposed to Chevron 2. Uh, and when I, uh, when I finally read uh, Justice Scalia's really masterful book with Brian Gartner, Reading Law, um, I, I realized that most questions for him were questions that could be uh, resolved and had a correct answer uh, uh, in terms of the uh, statutory language. So Chevron 1 was a very large realm, uh, and Chevron 2, these policy decisions that are delegated to the agency because they're not really answered by the statute, that was a relatively small issue. And I think that's why he kept pointing me to his uh, dissent in, uh, in Meade. So I think that the answer to the puzzle of, uh, of why he was the one dissenter in Meade is really explained by his, his views about statutory interpretation uh, as stated in uh, his book, Reading Law. And I, I guess I'd say just two quick things. One is, I mean, I, I, I do think that our could fall. Um, so I, I would identify that as one. But I guess what I would also say is, you know, m my own view is that, you know, Justice Scalia was having his doubts, but he still cared so much about administrability that he couldn't really sign on to this notion that it would be like, well, the line would be jurisdiction because that's right. like, you know, that's meaningless. Yep. And like, you know, I wonder, although, you know, at times, you know, he, he would join opinions that sort of were in the important question canon, along with Lisa, you know, I really, I, I really doubt that he could have embraced that. I mean, I, you know, if, if he were here, I think, you know, he would say the way you can tell a question is important is if it complied with bicameralism and presentment. Um, and <laughs> if, it, if, if it did, it's important. And if it didn't, it's not. Um, so I just, you know, so I think if he were going to reconsider it, it would be very, very fundamental. But I think, you know, there, there, there are a lot of justices on the court that are much more inclined to incrementalism. So I think, you know, what you could see is our goes, and then Chevron just gets sort of trimmed back in ways that probably would have driven the justice crazy. And in the Gloucester County case, which... Uh, as Don mentioned, cert was granted in. The court did not grant cert on the first question, which is sort of a direct uh, attack on our. But it did grant the second question, which was, quote, if our is retained, should deference extend to an unpublished agency letter? Uh, and it goes on from there. So our is clearly in play in that case, and uh, it'll be an interesting case to watch. So with that, let me turn it over to the floor. If you could just uh, indicate uh, your name, who you're with, and state a brief question. Thank you. Thank you. Hello, my name is Craig Lean. I'm the city attorney for Coral Gables, Florida. I just had a question about the practical aspect of the elimination of Chevron. I asked because you know, so many counties, cities, states, the entire system uses Chevron. And to the extent that they would follow suit if, if the federal courts eliminated it, what would that do to the doctrine of judicial restraint? Because so many decisions, like at a city, are made and it would open them up to being reconsidered by the court almost de novo in applying the law. And I'm concerned that that would destroy the doctrine of judicial restraint. Well, I, I wouldn't worry a great deal uh, about that because I think, in, in fact, that the Chevron as interpretive canon simply says if a law says what another group can do, the law has to be obeyed 
and the court says what the outer bounds are. But inside the bounds, there's policy discretion, and the policy discretion is exercised by whatever entity is given that. So you can have deference to the exercise of policy discretion that can be very broad. Look at the, the Federal Communications Commission, which is supposed to uh, give out broadcast licenses, regulate, allocate the spectrum as the public interest, convenience, and necessity require. That's obviously a huge grant of policy discretion. And, and this gets to, to a point Don made. That is a statute where Justice Scalia would say, I know the outer bounds. I, I don't know the precise meaning of those terms because those terms do convey discretion. Yeah, just a footnote to that. I, I agree with everything Ron has said. I don't think there's any real chance that Chevron uh, will be uh, completely abrogated. Uh, but on the other hand, uh, the last time I looked, and it's been a few years, only about two-thirds of the state Supreme Courts had adopted and follow a version of uh, Chevron. So there are lots of examples of courts that managed to go along just by construing the, the statute. Um, now, typically, it's interesting, typically, if you don't have Chevron, you also don't have State Farm. Uh, and you're really the court is simply looking at the outer bounds and whether or not something is within an agency's discretion or not. Thank you. Uh, next question. Yeah, if you, in, in the respect of brevity, uh, I'm Mike Doherty uh, from the LabMD, and I am the CEO, not a lawyer, but a member of the Federal Society several years, and in, got the big LabMD FTC case right now. So I wrote this down so I would be very brief. Um, so most outside of the law are appalled at the double whammy of the APA and Chevron deference. Why do you think that we need to have hearsay and a lack of using the federal rules of civil procedure and rules of evidence within the administrative law process? Um, I would expect your father to tell me to go take that to Congress, but um, to me, hearsay has turned administrative law into a procedural landmine avoidance exercise instead of really seeking justice as what's happened in so many CEOs have been, that I've talked to after my experience and their similar experiences with this sort of procedural shredding. Take it to Congress. Sounds like a pretty good answer. I, I appreciate it, but I, I don't know if others want to address that question. Will Congress say hearsay is okay? So well, I've heard. Okay, huh? I'll, I'll try very briefly. Uh, I think the basic answer is a lot of the federal rules of evidence, uh, including the rules excluding hearsay, uh, are really designed to protect uh, against juries. And if you look at the 1975 rules of uh, evidence, um, there are a lot of uh, discretionary exceptions to hearsay. So hearsay comes in in the trial courts uh, all the time. Um, oh, yeah. The difference is that we don't take new evidence in, in judicial review of administrative decisions. We don't have a trial in the uh, court and we don't, have, we don't have juries. It's on the administrative record and the, and the idea is that the agency will decide what type of evidence they think is credible or, or not, and then the court will, will review that. So rather than having rules to constrain a, a trial court, um, the idea is that the agency will decide whether or not to hear hearsay. So there isn't a rule that hearsay is always admissible in administrative Yeah, that wasn't my proceeding. representation, though. I understand that. Okay. Okay. Thank you. Uh, next question. Thanks. So... 
um, I wanted to talk about uh, the uh, Department of Transportation uh, versus American Association of Railroads. Uh, my name is Devin Watkins from the Kittle Institute. This is the, specifically the concurrence by Justice Thomas, making the distinction between questions of law that could not be uh, delegated and questions of fact or misquestions of fact that could be. And I, my question is, uh, was the original understanding by Stevens in Chevron making this distinction? Uh, specifically, INSV uh, Cardonza Frenza, the uh, same majority on Chevron said that this was the interpretation of Chevron that allowed delegations on these mixed questions of fact, but not on pure questions of law. And in light of Justice Thomas's uh, concurrence in that, I wonder if that's a way to limit Chevron to only those uh, mixed questions of fact and not pure questions of law. Well, I'll try that. When I teach it, I point out that what they cite is Morton versus Ruiz, which is a rulemaking case. So basically, I, I say that uh, they, they say on issues in Chevron, they say that on issues in which Congress had no specific intent, um, that it assimilates those to policy questions. I prefer the term policy questions to mixed questions of law and fact. But it basically says that unless it's one of these uh, issues on which Congress made a specific decision, i.e. a question of law, then the question of law becomes a policy decision that is presumed to have been delegated to the agency. That's how I understand it. And Lisa, did you want to comment as well? I just think that Chevron grew up partly because we weren't able to distinguish between pure questions of law and mixed questions of law and fact. I've never for the life of me been able to understand what a naked question of law is, which is the old formulation in the Packard case by Justice Jackson. So I, I don't think that would be a useful um, theme going forward. What about uh, uh, difference? I, I'm sorry if we could, we have a number of people behind you. Good morning, Paul. Uh, Paul Kaminar, D.C. lawyer and uh, senior fellow of the Administrative Conference. Uh, we were talking about Chevron Step 1 and 2, where the panel commented on Chevron Step 0, as we saw in King versus Burwell, the Obamacare case. And also going to Paul's point about when Congress passes an ambiguous statute, the question is, should it be the courts or the agencies? The larger question is, should it go back to the Congress, which is a lawmaker? And I'm talking about the Congressional Review Act, uh, which gives Congress the right to veto regulations and this new administration, there are about 140 regulations subject to that and whether or not the Range Act will solve a lot of these Chevron problems by making it a law that no regulations can go into effect at all, uh, major regulations, until Congress affirmatively approves of that and therefore put it back, the lawmaking back where it belongs in the Article One branch. Anybody want to tackle that? Please, Lisa? Congress always has the lawmaking authority. I've never understood this idea that Congress doesn't have the lawmaking authority. All of the agencies are created by statute and constrained by statute. Yeah, I think though what Paul is raising, and it's a very interesting and difficult question, is what used to be called a remand to Congress. Uh, and Lisa is certainly right that, that Congress always has the opportunity to step in. But I think the question is uh, when, whether or not the courts should essentially make Congress resolve certain kinds of issues. And um, the difficulty with that is it, it's very hard to get agreement, particularly with the filibuster rules in the Senate. So there are a lot of decisions um, on which uh, Congress is incapable uh, of reaching a policy decision one way or the other, at least as it's currently structured. Although you could run that argument the other way and say that uh, Chevron is guilty of 
contributing to Congress's oh, dysfunction. I, I agree with that. I agree with that. Uh, yeah, with that. And, and I would just add, like, at the end of the day, I mean, I think, you know, there's certainly ways for Congress to pass laws that directly regulate the regulatory state, take some of this back, and that's one way of dealing with this. But the other way of dealing with this is to just, you know, as I think Justice Scalia would, be ro more robust at stage one, and then you can also have default rules that essentially force Congress to act if they want to do certain things. I mean, you know, you think one area you see this is when, you know, you have the potential for administrative agencies to be interpreting laws in ways that create criminal liability. I mean, there I think, you know, Justice Scalia would, would have, you know, applied the rule of lenity and other things at step one to basically say, unless Congress is more clear, you have to go back right. to Congress if you want us to put somebody in jail. Right. So, you know, there, there are other doctrines that, from the court's perspective, that can force issues back to Congress. Next question. So, I mean, this is a, a bit of that a... That has to do with whether there are 60 legislative days, but I'm not going to get right, into those right. details with you. <laughs> yeah. But that's, but, I mean, uh, uh, there's a divide on the court on this. John Eastman, Chapman University, and also a senior fellow at the Claremont Institute. A divide on the court on this is, are the concerns about these deference doctrine rooted in Article Three concerns? or rooted in Article I concerns. And Justice Thomas, in his, one of his recent opinions, sets out that it's probably both. And if it's both, then the, then the answer, the, the, the big question doctrine, that we're not gonna give deference to the agency, we're effectively gonna give deference our, to ourselves, right. doesn't make any sense. And it is the concern about pushing back on that and taking up the, the baton that Paul has suggested, uh, simply this divided government, Congress is not gonna do it. But then we end up with lawmaking by by the very entities that are not supposed to be doing lawmaking at all. And that becomes the default rule. Isn't that the, the big concern? And you've got to revive the non-delegation doctrine as well as ch pushing back on these, these other doctrines. There is, there is a real need to have a non-delegation doctrine if you don't want to have agencies doing what Congress is supposed to do. And when you look at a case like Mistretta where Justice Scalia talks about having a junior varsity Congress, it's a real concern, and that's the concern that Justice Thomas is raising in the Association of American Railroads case. A lot of the problems we have uh, with the application of Chevron, a lot of what uh, you see in, in a case like King and Burwell that drove Justice Scalia nuts in sort of creating, it's a, it's a major questions doctrine when the law is clear. Here's, a, here's an area where the law is perfectly clear but the, the, what the law is clear about is something that maybe if Congress were looking at it carefully, it wouldn't have done. It's hard to have a major questions doctrine that says, Congress, if you don't think about it, we will. And that's, that's exactly the opposite of a working non-delegation doctrine. With apologies to my good friend and law partner, Kristen Lindsley, I, we can take one more question. <laughs> so, no, no, I'm sorry. Uh, Oh, okay. Well, then, no apologies to Kristen. <laughs> John asked, I think, the question that both of us had. So I just wanted to add one point about the non-delegation doctrine, which was going to be my question. Um, and that is that just, I clerked for Justice Scalia in 89. Um, and as Gene mentions, I'm his law partner now at Gibson Dunn. Uh, but the justice did always say that very thing to us in discussing Chevron and the problems and limitations on Chevron and some of the other doctrines is that maybe the solution is to go back to some form of the non-delegation doctrine. So I just throw that out there since it was something that he, he, he did say. Lisa, final comment? When I uh, clerked for Justice Brennan, um, 
the Mistretta case was decided, and I was amazed, surprised people to learn that I think I was the only person in that building other than Justice Scalia who believed that those sentencing commission guidelines had a non-delegation problem. I, I think that is probably the doctrine that you would deploy in order to get rid of some of these problems. What I would say is that I don't think it's fair, though, or honest, or even-handed to have non-delegation worries about the agencies and to have those materialize in statutory interpretation without saying so, without saying we see a problem and we have five votes to say it's a problem. Well, let me just add one thing, and that is if he wanted to re-invoke the delegation doctrine, he had his chance in Whitman versus American Trucking, and I think he, he basically wrote the, uh, cute, the, 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 the death knell to the delegation doctrine, because if even Justice Scalia is not going to have delegation concerns, uh, I don't think that's really on the table anymore. Uh, well, uh, thanks to all of you for joining, and please join me in thanking this panel for this terrific discussion.